Welcome to Real History, shows what you know about history. On this podcast, we talk about historical movies and television, anything that claims to be based on a true story, and we check how bad did they mess it up? What was life actually like during that time period? Well, that's why we're here, to separate the real history from the real history. My name is Jacob Burrows, and I don't know anything about history. And my name is Michael Tynan, and to quote Ulrich von Lichtenstein, Stop the moon, make this night your beauty last forever. Um, my name is Mark, and I have too much honey in my tea. Today, we will rock you, because we're talking about the 2001 film A Knight's Tale. And if you haven't seen it, I will provide a one-sentence summary that attempts to separate the plot from any historical context, though the film does a pretty good job of that as well in itself. Um, This is my one-sentence summary. A member of a lower economic class pretends to be a member of an upper economic class in order to compete in, a, in an exclusive sport and ultimately, with an unlikely band of allies, prove that the class system is broken. And also there's rock music. Lots of rock music. <laughs> yeah. So that's my summary of A Knight's Tale. As I said, divorcing it from any historical context, um, it's about jousting and knights more specifically. Uh, it's a cheerfully anachronistic film, which I'm sure we'll get into. It's Rocky with Lances. It's a sports film about a knight who um, goes on tourneys and uh, basically uh, goes from the bottom of the bottom to the top of the top. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Michael, do you have a few more details on the film and you know who actually put it together and this stuff? Yeah, of course. So basically came out in 2001, so 20 years ago, if that doesn't make you feel old, gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> just yeah. just over two hours long, 133 minutes. Um, it's written by, uh, directed by Brian Helgeland. It's also written by Brian Helgeland as well, um, who I didn't, I wasn't too aware of this guy's films. I It was a bit of a struggle for me to even watch this film. So he's also written Mystic River and LA Confidential, which are pretty stellar, you know. They're, They're pretty good movies. Yeah, that's yeah. not bad. Um, in terms of the setting, this is a difficult one because they never actually state when it is. Uh, but it's medieval France and... If we had to guess, we'd have to say it's between 1309 or 1376. Um, And this is really only a guess, but in the film, there's a reference uh, to the Pope being French at the time. And this would indicate that it's the Avignon papacy. So we're going at 1309 to 1376. So it was a while ago anyway. 100 years war. I believe behind the scenes, some of the reasoning was uh, we're going to use a lot of 70s music and stuff yeah. because this film is set in the 1370s uh, i think that's it but i'm not 100 percent. oh well that would fit then though so that's perfect yeah um it in terms of rotten tomatoes uh, like it's a hundred based on 150 reviews you're getting 59 percent. so you know it's not considered terrible but it's uh neither is it going to be on an oscar list you know um and in, more importantly it's based on The Knight's Tale by Geoffrey Chaucer, who we'll hopefully go into a little bit later, um, who was the writer of the Canterbury Tales. Yes, I would say not even the film really pretends that it's based on that. I think it's basically just borrowed the name. Like, Chaucer is a character in the film, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it it has no connection, really, with the Canterbury Tale of uh, The Knight's Tale, which is apparently just two knights jousting, and uh, one of them dies, and then uh, they're sad about it. It's no connection at all with the plot of this film, uh, which is emblematic of how the film treats its (laughs) connections to history in general. It doesn't really... uh, 
bother too much, but it does it in such a bold way that I, at least, am swept up in it. Uh, as far as the film, we have to mention the stellar cast, Heath Ledger, the late, great Heath Ledger as the main character in this. Um, we also see various other familiar faces like Paul Bettany, who uh, is, of course, also in Master and Commander and the Marvel films and WandaVision and everything. Kind of steals the film, really, you know. He's, he does a bit, yeah. And he's he was um, he's good friends with the director as well, and the part was sort of written for him to a certain extent makes sense um we also have uh mark addy who is probably most known now for the role of robert baratheon uh playing uh, his pal uh one of his pals that he grew up with and the full and, monty uh, don't uh, forget the full monty the full monty, yeah, the full yeah, monty. Yeah, yeah. very true very true uh and alan uh i don't know how to pronounce his name alan ray tudnik tudjik tudjik he is probably most known. Well, I don't know. Uh, I know him best from Firefly and Serenity as yeah, the captain. Yeah, he's Wash on those shows. In, in Firefly, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. Wash. And uh, I uh, didn't mention any of the women because they're not on the top list of Wikipedia, and uh, they're not <laughs> given shocked. a very fair due in the film either. Well, well, we've yeah. got, I've, I've got a few of them there. We've got Shannon Sossaman who plays uh, Jocelyn. Um, who is yeah. sort of the main love interest in the film uh, as well. And you've got Laura Fraser, and she plays, plays the Kate the Blacksmith, who's the Scottish blacksmith, yeah. who I thought would have been a better fit who for is our hil- the, hero. Who is the best William, character you know? in, the, in the film. Like, she's, <laughs> she's the most interesting best person in the whole movie. Like, and why the principal character has any interest in Jocelyn when the blacksmith is right there is completely beyond me and uh yeah i i was uh, i was consistently she could even fix his armor for him you know yeah although i i have to say also i do appreciate that she's there and becomes just one of the gang and is not forced into being like a romantic subplot for one of the men because jocelyn uh like uh shannon does a great job of portraying this character for what what's there because she adds a lot to it but she's a very kind of flat character in comparison to like how all the men are allowed to have more of a personality. But hey, what 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 else is new? It's a Hollywood film. <laughs> um, yeah. I do want to say, I think for Mark as well, like the guy that jumps out of you here would be James Purify, um, who plays so in the film he play he's Ed he's supposed to be Edward the Black Prince or Sir Thomas Colville in the film. Yeah. Uh, and we yeah. Uh, fans of Rome the TV show will know him as Mark Antony. So he always uh, you know he doesn't really you he he even if he's in a bad film he's always good you know the type of way yeah. and you can stay you can kind of st- say the same for rufus sewell who is the main kind of uh, Masafan, enemy oh, massive fan yeah. of rufus sewell he's a, he, like in everything he's in he's an arsehole it's great like, he's just yeah. he's just he's just consistently good as a bad guy as a villain like he's he's plays uh the ss officer in the man in the high castle and he's yeah. just like it's it's a testament to his acting ability to say that he is a highly convincing lunatic SS officer. You know, it's just he's he's very very yeah. he's very very good in that role. We we will uh, obviously talk a lot more about the plot uh, of the film, how it's uh, largely disconnected from uh, reality and so <laughs> on, and what we liked and disliked about that respectively. Because I have a very fond uh, impression of this film. I had it on VHS tapes, uh, on any VHS tape when I was younger, and, and watched it many a time. And uh, I basically forced both of you to watch it now, and I don't think it made the same favorable impression as it has on me. Um, but I don't know if you want to comment on that now, or we'll leave it for. I don't the want end. to upset you either now, way, Jacob. If it's such a precious memory from your childhood, I really don't want to ruin it for you. So, <laughs> I, I would just say, okay, like, well, 
<laughs> I, I think I think um, like this this film for me like I remember it coming. I remember this movie being released. Like I remember I remember because I, I I must yeah I was a I was pretty I was pretty obviously it was twenty years ago so I was pretty young like but I I remember it um I remember it coming out and for me like looking at it now it just it's so of its time like the cast. Oh yeah. Uh, it, 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 like I know we're all like principally used to. Well, of of the, the cast, I, I suppose Paul Bettany would be the one that you'd see the most now, because you know, as you said, he's in the Marvel movies and whatnot. But um, when you when you look at those people, like uh, Shannon Sosman, like she was in a bunch of movies around that time that were like romantic comedies. You you know, starring people like Josh Hartnett and you know what I mean, and like Ben Affleck and like Matt Damon when their careers were sort of starting. And there's just it sort of fits in that mold. And I think even Heath Ledger was in five or six similarly you know films of a similar size in terms of in terms of their box office success and and sort of was was principally known for this kind of thing until uh until of course uh the dark knight and and if if people yeah. I, I don't know if people remember like when he was cast as a joker there was absolute uproar on the internet that this guy from yes. a knight's tale would be the joker that people were furious about this idea but he's a romantic comedy actor that's ridiculous you know and then obviously he turns in this like Oscar winning amazing performance kind of thing or whatever. But for me, I think the film probably didn't have the same resonance that it had with you because I was at that point I think in puberty where I was just like, oh, this is it. This is too obvious. You know what I mean? It's not. I don't like this music. It's not sarcastic enough, and I don't like this film. It's not dark enough. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I was I was in that kind of yes. <laughs> that kind of mode. You know what I mean? So everything I like, is shit. Everything is shit. Yeah. So it just didn't really land with me. I think you know at that time. So I don't want to clean couple, my room. Yeah, exactly. But I am a couple of years older than you, Jacob. Maybe so. Uh, I, I might have just been in that sort of the, the flush of uh, oncoming uh, adolescent rebellion. You know. <laughs> sure and michael i mean uh as long as what we're tearing apart is the history uh portrayed in the film and not the film feel free to go nuts <laughs> uh otherwise if you want to critique the film itself uh i mean there there's there's a lockdown right now but there will be a fight later on um so just i'm con- just I, I'm, I'm very confident don't worry very confident Okay, that's good. Um, Right, I mean, again, we'll get more into the film throughout the episode, but basically the reason, besides me wanting to force you both to watch this film, because you hadn't seen it, I was like, what, how dare you? Um, I, besides that, this is obviously a great jumping off point to talk about nights in general, because we've talked about related topics. We've even talked about this time period before, I think, when we talked about The King, uh, getting more into sort of the historical political movements. But... One thing I always want to do on Real History is talk about more in general what was life like versus how it's portrayed. And A Knight's Tale very cheerfully doesn't pretend to be portraying anything correctly, but I think it it, it sort of romanticizes everything to an extreme degree. But it's a great jumping off point to talk about knights what they are like versus our popular perception of them because there's it's such an iconic romanticized thing anyway even outside of this film obviously every disney film everything uh about knights and and valor and all of that and i want to get into the gritty version the realness of it um so we'll talk about that and then get into some of the characters and stuff of the film but if we're starting with knights and like what what they actually are at this time where would you like to start with that mark well Jacob, funny enough, the first thing I'm, I'm actually going to say is going to be a redeeming feature of the film. So you're 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 going to you're going to like okay. this. Um, the movie does actually a good job of portraying the classist element that existed in in the feudal society because we've got a guy who's assuming a fake identity, pretending to be from a class that he wasn't, and the reason he's doing that is 
the knights were essentially a, a subclass uh, within feudal society, um, and they had always been that. So I, I, I'll, uh, I'll I'll take you back to where the the, the concept of knights re- sort of originates from in, in European history, um, and not just because it's myself and Michael and we love veering into this topic, but it actually does go back to the Roman Empire, believe it or not. Um, and the, re- <laughs> the the reason it goes back to the Roman Empire is is when when we discussed that. We talked about there being sort of two classes, the senatorial class and the plebs, so the lords and the peasants is an easy way to put it. But in between that yeah. rank, there was what what was called the equestrian class. And they were called the equestrian class because they could afford horses, essentially. So they were mm-hmm. they were basically rich, uh, upper middle class folks. Um and, and, and that's where they that's where they, they were they were referred to as knights or or equites. Uh so they were the horsemen basically. And they they formed a, a social rank because they were able to provide the cavalry in militia army in the early days of the of the of European civilizations. Um why that's important is because um in the low medieval period, so several centuries before where this movie is set, when you have the establishment of um Charlemagne's rule over the Frankish Empire I won't get into great detail but just suffice to say that's France, parts of Germany, parts of Holland, a bit of Italy um, and it's sort of created um, largely our concepts of the modern countries of France and Germany and so on um, Charlemagne had a, had a need for horsemen basically because his empire was larger than what had existed previously uh, for several centuries, he needed mobility and in order to do that he basically went around recruiting people who are wealthy enough to own horses and sort of re-establish this concept of knights. So what would happen is you would agree to serve in Charlemagne's imperial army uh, as a cavalryman. And as a reward for that, you were given what was called a benefices. And the benefices, a benefit, was you were given an allotment of land. And that basically meant that you were now essentially a lord. Um, and that's what created the, the concept of fiefdoms and, and feudalism as we know it. So feudalism basically is you have an overlord or a king and underneath that there's parcels of land that is assigned to individuals and they are responsible for, for running that land, farming it, um, producing the wealth. They then pay tax to the overlord but they keep a big chunk of the money for themselves. Knights develop out of that essentially. Um, so what knights basically are is they're typically the sons of these noblemen, okay? So they're, they're, they're sons or nephews or, or relatives of these noblemen. You're not really going to get peasants who become knights. It, it did happen occasionally, yeah. but it's really, really, really not very common. The, the period the movie. I don't know, Mark, because <laughs> in... Sorry, but in Kingdom of Heaven, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of Rise people of being knighted yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Towards the end, and so I'm pretty sure if you you were in the right city at the right time time you could get knighted. If you were very, <laughs> if you were very very fortunate circumstances, maybe you could go your way. But by and, it and looked large, like you were about to be massacred by. If you're about to be massacred by by, by uh, <laughs> Saladin, yeah, um, yeah. But but by and large, um, that's that's not really something would ha- that would happen. Like you would only really become a knight if you were from a, a certain reasonably privileged privileged class uh, and the degree to your privilege yeah. would depend on sort of where geographically you're from as we, I'll get into when we talk about uh, Ulrich later on um, but the period of the movie is set in uh, the 14th century so that's sort of the height of of uh, knights as we understand them as you, as you sort of understand them from popular culture how did it work basically um, you, if you're a knight, what you do is you swear your swords to a lord, a local lord or a king, 
and in return as i said you're given a parcel of land you basically become quite wealthy if you're not already quite wealthy in return what swearing your sword basically means is you uh say to the lord or the king that you're sworn to that you'll serve them for a given period of days in a year right but only for that given period of days and the rest of the time was up to you mm. now that sounds like a pretty good deal but it's even better than you think because the number of days was only 40 so you only actually had to be on active duty for 40 days which is pretty nice you know um the rest of the time you'd be quite bored and you might get involved in sports like jousting Interesting. Right. So up until that bit, everything you said falls very much in line with the romanticized idea anyway. But that's pretty interesting that it was only that amount of time. Would it, I assume it would be different in wartime or what have you or no? Because uh, you can't really, a lot of wars famously lasted a number of years. In fact, it's in the name of some wars and I can't imagine they were only fighting for 40 days there. Well, so here's so here's the thing. The knights... Uh, allegedly, the idea is that they formed a cavalry corps of of a of a king's of a feudal army, but knights very rarely died, like almost never mm. died in battle because they didn't actually form the corps at all, and they were dressed like RoboCop, and they were, yeah, and they had the best armor anyway. But they typically didn't really do mo- most of the fighting in feudal armies. The people doing the fighting were the peasant levies, like they were the you know. So these big cavalry charges that you see. They might be led by knights sometimes, but not always. Sometimes they were just state uh, kitted out, like state state funded soldiers kitted out with, you know, the local lords' horses, and they weren't necessarily knights themselves. Um, right. So yes, they might it might go longer than 40, uh, 40 days, but that would depend on how successful it was. So if you were in an if you were in a feudal army that was invading a, a neighboring kingdom or a neighboring uh, duchy or something. You might serve more than 40 days, but it would depend very largely on how much money you were making from looting. How, how well were you doing? The idea um, of this the whole chivalry thing and the code of conduct, that is true. There, there, there was a code of conduct, but to what extent did the knights actually adhere to it? They basically never really did. And when they did adhere to it, it was only within their own classes. Don't be under the impression at all that there was these nice knights going around who were kind to peasants. Not true. Like they, it's just it's just not the way it was. Knights had uh, had this code of chivalry that determined more how they would deal with each other than how they would deal with anything else. It wasn't really yeah, down yeah. to like you know protect the innocent and always be. The, they might swear all of these things. It's all bollocks. Like they did, they didn't actually do any of that at all. It's just it's just not true. What it, what in effect you actually had was really um, you you had gangs of young noblemen who often had nothing to do. So they would actually do things like they would hang around, like gangs of like youths, like little, you know, you know what I mean, like gangs of teenagers that you see now. They would hang around at bridges, yeah. and they would charge people to cross the bridge on pain of combat, and they would make you fight, like, and they would harass women who were on their own. I mean, I mean, like sexually harass women who were on their own. These were knights, allegedly chivalric people. This is actually what they did, and they would get involved in jousting tournaments, and they would be trying to like further their fame, and they would be. It would all be about reputation and pushing your family name, and and your your making sure that your coat of arms was well known, and all of this kind of stuff. They weren't these. Who's got the biggest lance? Who's got the biggest lance? Yeah, yeah, it is that pathetic. Like they they they're not. They're not at all these uh, great noble warriors that, that has come to us through history. But that has come to us through history because of two of the principal characters in this movie, actually. Or at least the names associated with the principal characters. Were there examples in history, Mark, that you know of where 
certain knights did live up to the their their aims of you know their sh- their chivalry and all this type of thing is there I anybody can, up there who you can put on a yes there is i can think of one <laughs> i mean it, it, it is pretty <laughs> limited to all but um so there is a uh, there was a knight in the early uh the early angevin period in england he was called william marshall and william marshall was uh, alleged anyway according to according to biographies and and, histor- and historians do think it's true he was uh probably um the sort of the the pinnacle of what uh, people would hope knights would be like because he actually followed the chivalric code the way he should he was nice to people he was uh profoundly quote unquote christian uh, in his in his dealings he didn't burn anyone out of their homes he was an extremely powerful wealthy uh, noble warrior but um yeah he sort of he sort of lived up to the to the um the code of the code of uh, conduct that most knights throughout history didn't really do now having said that he existed 150 years before where this movie is set so he's in a period of time where Knights were, there were fewer of them for a start. There wasn't as many knights knocking around. And uh, their role uh, within um, military uh, uh, conduct in, in, in uh, what's now Britain and France was sort of more um, uh, more important in terms of he might have actually led men rather than sort of just hanging out at a jousting tournament showing off. Because that's what knights did at this point in history. So the movie actually does a reasonably good job of portraying that, I would say. Interesting. I did want to ask about the, you know, code of chivalry and that. Like, would it be fair to say there was like one code? Because I, I can't help but relate this to the samurai and because they existed for such a long period of time, it developed over time and changed. I assume since it's so tied with Christianity, it was more or less be a good Christian. Like, is this shit written down? Any more you can tell us about, you know, the reality behind the myth of chivalry? Yeah, so... so so basically, uh, there, there sort of was a code, as you say, and it evolved over time, sort of similar to the samurai, as you say, the, the code of Bushido or whatever. Um, and and it, it evolved over centuries. So by the 11th century, um, you've got, a, you've got uh, knights existing as a sort of a cast of elite warriors that, that exist um, throughout Europe. What happens is the Crusades, when the Crusades are called... Um, mm. one of the reasons why the Pope does that is because the uh, scale of um, warfare between Christian factions, small fiefdoms and lords fighting each other with their knights is sort of out of control and the Pope, uh, quite uh, savvy in, in his politi- political dealings, sees a way of unifying them all and then throwing them against a sort of a common enemy, which is, which is sort of what the Crusades were, or one of the things that the Crusades were and what happens there is over time knights become really really associated then with the crusades because it's it's knights who are going on crusade because the peasants can't afford to do it right so remember that so it's yeah. it costs a lot of money to be able to do it and knights are typically quite wealthy um so that worms its way into the sort of the the um the structures that exist around knighthood so the the, the there's this thing where you become sworn in as a knight as you've all seen a million times you know you get slapped with the glove and all. that's that's referred to as the accolade okay so um and and it sort of means what it means nowadays um and and that that actually comes from an old germanic tribal um uh, rite of passage for a young man where uh, you would you would suffer a blow, so you'd be hit with it with a with a weapon, 
or you'd be yeah. sort of hit hit a punch in the air kind of thing, you know. As in, like, this is your you're swearing now your oath of fealty to your lord and to protect the people within this this kingdom, and then they'd hit you and say that's so you don't forget your oath, right? So is that why Jacob did that on the first day we made this podcast, Mark. Yeah, exactly. He smacked us with two microphones. <laughs> Yeah, and I said, let these be the last time these microphones peak. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, that's interesting. So, we've obviously talked, actually, I was joking before about Kingdom of Heaven, but it is connected, obviously, if you want to listen to our episode on Kingdom of Heaven, because that's also, like, the Pope and the Catholic Mm -hmm. uh, Church kind of going, wait a minute, we can tell people to do whatever we want, more or less. (laughs) And that is a very unifying thing for one person to be able to do and sort of point all of Christendom in one direction. So I could see how that would influence uh, things here as well. Also, like, a great way to get, if you've had, say, 13, 14 children and only one of them can inherit your land, it's a great way of getting rid of your your kids you know send them on crusades yeah. some will die some will have new, find found new kingdoms you know no absolutely that that was a that was a key consideration you couldn't inherit a knighthood you could inherit the land and you could inherit the mm. the nobility the the title of like lord or baron or whatever goes along but you don't inherit a knighthood you have to be you have to receive the accolade to become to become a knight um, and not every lord was a knight not every lord's kids were knights but some of them were and it was it was, it was regarded as a as a point of real prestige um to receive the accolade or the uh, benedictio militas as they called it in the church which basically just means the same thing so at this point in uh like when we're a bit more advanced from the proto knight stages we're kind of get, getting towards the high point of it obviously this film uh, a knight's tale is all about jousting it's a sports film like i said uh we see some glimpses of how it's portrayed it's obviously adapted for film but we see them gather at these jousting places where it's mostly about uh you know riding horses at each other and trying to knock each other off the horses there's also games of sword and everything but it's known that the the actual jousting is more prestigious and, and stuff like that so our main character wants to do that um and it pays more um and you need obviously papers of nobility to get in and, and show that you're uh allowed to participate as i alluded to in my one sentence summary but let's talk a bit about jousting in general michael i, I think you looked a bit into how how well is it actually like portrayed here how well does it correspond to what actually happened uh well when I was doing a little bit of research into jousting, um, what I saw it first described as was the world's first extreme sport. And <laughs> I kind of really liked that reference. And I think that yeah. rings true because, you know, there is a strong chance of death at all times, you know, either by accident or by a direct hit from a lance, you know. Um, but I suppose jousting itself... Uh, some believe, just like Mark was saying about the origin of the knights, some believe it, it has roots going back to Roman times as well, you know. Uh, the first actual recorded uh, mention of jousting um, is in 1066, so that famous year of, you know, the Battle of Hastings and all this type of thing. Um, but it really enjoyed its sort of heyday in the in the time the film is set. So you're looking at, you know, in the 1300s to 1400s. That's when it was at the peak of its popularity, when the tournaments were widespread. And um, I suppose, you know, it, even, it developed over that time. So initially when people first started jousting, like they were just wearing boiled leather. And it had, obviously because of that, it developed quite a 
a bloody reputation and a lot a lot of people died so over the years like established rules were formed uh you know they created the idea of what we call the list so the the this is what you see in the film the organized tournament ground uh within a city or within a castle or in a field uh where knights would have defined rules about how the actual uh, sport was played so it officially it, it became they eventually got a fifa basically to organize it as far as i i can see anyway you know whether it was as corrupt as fifa now is I was just gonna say for, was somebody <laughs> was somebody being awarded rolex watches on the slide to maybe move a vote <laughs> at all there I, I suppose what i was interested about just jousting is why it came about so obviously mark and you yeah. got uh, you both went into it like there was a lot of lords hanging around doing nothing but i suppose there was a few advantages to it if you were uh, a knight um or you were trying to prove yourself it show it was an opportunity for you to show to your own po- uh, population um and those who mattered in your kingdom that you were someone who you know had a lot of ba- battle prowess and valor and this type of thing uh but i think what i found more interesting was like the uh, the noblemen and the kings their motivation for I suppose holding these tournaments because they had to spend money on them there you know there was prizes there was a whole system around it you know there would have been feasts all this type of thing at the same time and you know the the, the motivation that we think their motivation was essentially that it was a way of keeping the knights busy so first of all if they're busy practicing this blood sport um they're less likely to be plotting to uh, overthrow you as their feudal lord um but mm. as well as that it, it stopped them from getting fat and sloppy and uh, get, like, you know, being out of shape for when they did need to be called upon to actually fight a battle. So it was a, it was basically to keep them in training. And I suppose that's the thing that really uh, um, kind of I found interesting about it because you can see why it developed. So, you know, um, one of the things I also found really interesting, I'm not 100% of it sure. So I'm going to just if it's actually true, but I saw a reference that there was knights for hire so because different feudal lords could host a, a tournament obviously uh, and they would hire knights to you know fight on their behalf and stuff like this as well and the idea of uh, a knight for hire was something that existed and apparently this is where the word freelance comes from you know so mm, to do yeah. a freelance job now whether that's true or it's just you wish it was true i'll find out for you <laughs> and we'll stick it in a I only saw one reference, but I couldn't get it backed up, so I'm not 100% sure on it. But it, it would be great if it fitted, you know? There's also, like, this concept of hedge knights, which I'm not sure how much I've taken from Game of Thrones and how much of that is actually any connection to reality. But I can't help thinking of Game of Thrones for loads of this because it's obviously, like, so connected as well. You could see the cost of spending money on tourneys and, and the benefits of it and bring me the breastplate stretcher! Great, great stuff from Game of Thrones that's also kind of related here. But I only bring that up because yeah hedge knights or knights without land uh do either of you know if that was a thing to a certain extent because obviously uh with samurai we have ronin as a kind of their own name for a masterless uh samurai and roaming knights i would assume is a thing just based on the amount of portrayals we have of them but i'm not sure yeah, hedge hedge knights were real. Yeah, like it it did happen um, that there were landless knights or master lordless 
nights, which is, like you say, like a ronin, uh, a masterless samurai. Um, why they were called hedge, like where where the, the terminology of hedge comes from, is is uh, sort of sort of difficult to um, to put a definitive meaning on it. I know there, I know there's some sort of uh, there, there's some sort of debate around it. Now, I've seen reference to it to it uh, meaning sort of. Um, or ha- having a similar meaning to sort of the edge or outside of the village or di- uh, having some reference to uh, division or divided from the land. Um, because you might use yeah. hedges to sort of divide up fields, basically. Um, but I've also seen a reference as like they sleep under a hedge because they're homeless sort of thing. And it's a derogatory term um, in, in some respects. Yeah. So a hedge knight is the lowest form of knight that you would have. And I would I would expect the reason why you would become a hedge knight is because your land was you were forced off your land because of some kind of a conflict or another or perhaps your uh, your lord or your father or whatever it might be was a terrible gambler and gambled the title away which also happened in medieval times so mm. yeah so it's a real thing hedge knights what I I did find interesting about it is that it did show in the film now obviously it did take me first of all about a half an hour to realize that this wasn't a mythical kingdom that was being you know displayed in the <laughs> film um yeah. i because it was so shrek like you know uh that i yes. i really found it and you know it, like in terms of even the sets it did look like i think i said it to you guys it looked like someone had raided the disney world store for you know their their shields and their their their, their yeah. lances and this type of thing but it did show in the film that they went from town to town to different tournaments and that is true uh, i did find it funny though that they called it the world championship i think yeah. in the film when they arrived in yeah. paris and i was like that is not a concept that they would have really understood <laughs> at that time you know uh, so i did see that as a big kind of uh, importation of a modern kind of sensibility around uh, sports and like even the u.s world series now you know uh, for f- american football so there was a few little imports like that but yeah, it did portray accurately that there was different tournaments in different regions that people did the circuit, as they called it, you know? Yeah, I mean, just speaking of those imports you mentioned, there's obviously loads of it, and it's like very clearly intentional. Just as another example, the director of this film sent Paul Bettany clips of like WWE wrestling <laughs> to kind of explain how he was supposed to big up Ulrich as he was coming in to do the Night King. You can see it in how he's like, Sir Ulrich von Liechtenstein and like bigging up his It is hilarious. Night. It is but hilarious I, the way you yeah. him. It is very good. Like Apparently Bettany didn't watch the clips. He just made the director reenact them because he thought it was funny. But that's just another example of like how they're importing things that the idea being to he actually did say, like, the director, I didn't want to present an alien world. I uh, I wanted to present a world that the audience would recognize elements of and see uh, that they're the same elements as their own. Like, obviously, that that's what's going on there. There's a lot of blatant that sort of thing going on. Um, but yeah, a- a- anything else on jousting in general or should we get into the characters? Just a couple of things I, I in terms of famous jousting uh, episodes that I thought was worth, a, worth yeah. mentioning. Um First of all, the famous Henry VIII, which we all knew, when he was about 44, his jousting career came to a, a sudden end when a horse fell on his leg. And I definitely thought that was an enjoyable thing to mention, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and most that- famously in fifth... 
Sorry, Mark. I was, I was just going to say, isn't that, isn't that the incident that they say? Like, you know, there's the famous painting of Henry VIII where he's quite large. Like, he's quite a big, fat, yeah. fat guy. And don't they allege it's because his leg injury was so severe that he, he couldn't really exercise? And actually, before that, he was quite a fit, uh, good-looking guy. Yeah. Like, and yeah, yeah. I just think that's funny. Like, he fell off a horse. Like, great. He <laughs> fell off his horse. The horse fell on his leg. That was the end of him. More seriously, in the later sort of period, so in 1559, so... Um, King Henry II of France actually died. Uh, he was celebrating his daughter's um, uh, marriage to the King of Spain, and he was at one of these tournaments, and he got a lance, a splinter of a lance through the eye, which sounds fucking horrific. And uh, that was the end of Henry II. So, funnily enough, when we get into the 16th century, jousting starts to become a little bit less popular, as you can see, especially <laughs> if it's killing killing your king. Probably yeah. probably shouldn't do as much of this stuff anymore. <laughs> and people got more interested in, like, cannons and shit and, and, and muskets at this <laughs> time, you know? The amount of splinters in this film is really impressive because there's so many yeah. shots of lances breaking and splinters flying everywhere. And I do have a fun fact there where, of course, these lances on set were sort of grooved to break, but also some of them had pasta inside them because it would hang in the air for longer than oh, splinters wow. of wood. So some of what you're seeing on screen is actually pasta. <laughs> that makes it even that's worse. <laughs> no, it makes that, it that, better. Like, I, it think, makes I it think better. that's... that's- yeah, I, lo- I love little little things like that in uh, in uh, filmmaking. Like, that's great because it hangs in the air because the weight obviously in the air. I think that's great. Like, so it looks better yeah. on camera. Yeah, there is a scene in the film. Uh, it's my favorite scene in the film. I'm not sure who's actually taking place in the joust at the time, but there's this hilarious um, clash where the two knights hit each other, and one of them like slow motion <laughs> falls off his horse, and then like bangs yeah. up against the wooden. Uh, kind of barricade between the two uh competitors and then like slowly crumples on his head into the ground and i just very the film was worth watching it just for that anyway (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i mean the action is pretty good if again i'm very biased i already love this film but it's got good action it's got other stuff that's not historically correct um let's me ask you because i didn't realize but they give uh heath ledger the the title his name real name in the film is will but they lie and tell he's ulrich von lichtenstein which is seemingly a name they make up on the spot but mark you tell me this is a real person ulrich von lichtenstein is very much a real person um it's it's really it's actually I was I almost said it's good writing, but I don't I don't want to invoke uh, Michael's fury there by saying that. But it, it's it's a clever choice, I think. Um, the reason I say that um, is because Ulrich von Liechtenstein was a was a real was a real person. He was a knight. He was uh, born around twelve hundred. Um, so it's before Chaucer, before the movie is set. Maybe maybe a century before the movie is set. There thereabouts. Um, so he's born in, in twelve hundred. Why is he important? Well, he was an extraordinarily gifted uh, jouster, um, a really, really successful jouster. But more important than that, he was a he was a, um, a quite a well known poet, and he wrote a he he wrote a a book of poetry that was sort of autobiographical. Now there is debate about whether or not this is just exaggerated 
sort of rubbish that he kind of wrote about himself after the fact or if he was sort of just saying oh well I actually did those things and then added a little bit of flavour so how true it is is open for debate but he, he wrote this book that was called uh, Frau Dienst um, or Frauen Dienst I don't know how to pronounce it he's, he's Austrian anyway um, he wrote this thing anyway, I'll, I'll get the audio book yeah right and it's a, it's a series of uh, it's a series of, of uh, poems and it's all about his pursuit of a noble woman and how he mm. is trying to win her love through displays of valor, um, and she's a sort of an older noble woman, and he's he's a he's a young guy, and he's just become knighted, so he's only in his probably early twenties, he's twenty three, twenty four, some sometime around some something around that. She's maybe ten years older than him, and he's basically spends years trying to trying to convince her to, of his devotion to her and she treats him like shit for like 10 years but he does all sorts of mad stuff like he gets involved in the, like jousting tournaments where he get, picks up injuries and he writes her a letter saying oh I've, I've injured my finger to this extent and I, I'm not going to be able to compete and all this kind of stuff and she's like well I don't believe you so he cuts his finger off and sends it to her as a, as a like a symbol of his devotion to her um, she then basically says well I, I will maybe consider speaking with you if you if you can go x amount of you know jousting things without without being defeated he goes 307 jousts on on, a, on like a victory streak all across austria northern italy into france and germany just beating everyone around until she until she'll speak to him and then she still treats him like shit basically but um the concept it of- seems like in real life Ulrich was perhaps uh slighted in his own mind and decided to write a, a series of poems about Possibly. what a bitch this woman was <laughs> and how he's the best and something that male writers have been keeping up well <laughs> we have been keeping up this tradition proudly for uh, another thousand years so well done well, us. <laughs> we have to blame we have to blame the women it's it's you know it's a church directive you know original sin and all that but he's um, in fair, in fairness in the, in the poems he doesn't actually yeah uh, he, he doesn't really bad her but he basically is bad her because he's like look at all these things I did and she still treats me treats me terribly but the point the, the, the point the reason I'm saying it's a, it's a good um it's a good character to use is because a lot of our concepts of uh, knightly devotion courtly love you know uh, honor and chivalry and all that a lot of that actually comes from von von Lichtenstein's uh, poetry and and I thought as you said Courtney th- love there for a second sorry <laughs> like, how did that happen that's, pro- that's probably a different podcast um but but uh yeah a lot of a lot of our concepts of, of uh, a knight's devotion and their drive for victory and their drive to overcome insurmountable odds comes from von Lichtenstein. so for the character in the, in the in the movie to take that name was pretty fitting i thought so. Yeah, but and I mean, similarly in A Knight's Tale, I feel like Jocelyn is done dirty by the film itself. There's this sequence where she tells Ulrich that uh, he needs to lose to prove that he's, you know, uh, that, that his pride is not bigger than his love for her or whatever. While that's fine in itself, she literally like watches him... Uh, hurt himself over and over for ages and is fucking loving it instead of having that happen like once or twice and then going like it's all right you've proved it instead it's like nah i his suffering is proving his love uh and that's made out to be a totally reasonable thing in the film which is great (laughs) because she has so much other character development that isn't related to this one man 
like her entire her entire entire reason for being like it's it's so offensive like her entire reason for being in this movie is she's pretty like that's literally it like it's and that's why I was talking about the, like the blacksmith character earlier because I'm like she's also pretty but she's also independent and skilled and has a real character and she's funny and like you know and I I just can't in the movie I'm just like there's no way he'd be attracted to the the, the girl who's just pretty you know what I mean he'd be attracted to the blacksmith like you know I just I just didn't buy it at all but anyway but that's Ulrich then um we have a like a couple more characters who are uh, actually like who exist in in real life I mean. There's the Black Prince. Uh, he's he's worth mentioning. I mean, Chaucer as well, obviously. But let's start with the Black Prince to get him out of the way. Yeah, so this uh, James Purifies character, who is a bit of a highlight in the film, you do see him later on knighting uh, Will and making him actually into his own knight, you know. Um, so he is portrayed in a very positive light in the film, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think so. Um, he's shown... A- as someone who is very chivalric um and he's also i suppose he's he's just a decent person so he portrays uh, the feudal system in a good way in that in that way you know um but the real edward the black prince um as he portrays he to give him his full title he was the duke of cornwall the earl of chester the prince of wales and later, just to top it all off, he became the Prince of Aquitaine in France um, as well. So, you know, he, he was a busy man. He was the, I suppose, he was the heir apparent to the king, of, uh, to the throne. Um, he was the eldest son of King Edward III and Philippa of uh, Hainault, who, and he was, so he's the eldest of 13 children they actually had. So, I know in medieval times, you know, there wasn't really any contraception. So, you know, 13 children wasn't that unusual. Um, but anyway, he he's probably in l- more long term. His contribution is that he was the father of Richard II of England as well. So his line continued on after him. Um, so first, what every, everybody always asks is why was he called a black prince, you know? And uh, I didn't know, so I had to look it up. Nobody really knows. He wasn't really called that in his lifetime at all until about 150 years later is the first reference to uh, him being this black prince. Some people think it was because of the color of the armor and the shield he wore. And other people think it's because he developed this very grim reputation um, when kind of on campaign in France he he had kind of a bloody reputation in how he suppressed a couple of different revolts and stuff like that so there's a few different uh, ideas about why he was called the black prince anyway you know um so i'm not sure what 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 are you interested to learn about him jacob well i don't know anything about him he's not really central but i i think it's interesting that as you say he is sort of kind of showing you know this whole class system it's not so bad we got a decent man at the top uh you know (laughs) he's looking out for the little man and and in the end he he knights will um which is you know obviously in in an even more progressive film we would like to see the class system shattered at the end uh but instead of just affirming that no it's fine as long as we make good people knights but uh yeah no he is kind of the embodiment of that so he, he in the film he appears briefly secretly jousting i don't know if there's any uh information on if that was a real thing that happened or not um, and so he did he was later. a famous yeah. jouster um in his day like he would have spent a lot of his life this poor fucker like when he was 16 he was 
in full battle at the the Battle of Cressy in northern France, um, when that would have been around 1346. So he would have spent most of his life either suppressing rebellions or fighting the French in in France, essentially. Uh, But, you know, in his spare time, yeah, he loved jousting. Uh, He was actually a famous gambler as well, and he was always sort of out of money uh, for various reasons. I don't know if he was betting on his own success in these jousting tournaments. Like, I don't think they had Paddy Power back then, but I'm sure they, they managed it somehow, you know. Um, but he was, yeah, so he was a he was, he was was known as someone who joust, and as well as that, he was a famous, I suppose, battled-hardened uh, knight, you know. So he's yeah. probably most, in, uh, most famously known for uh, the Battle of Poitiers in 1356, uh, we don't need to go into a lot of details on it, uh, partially because I don't have a lot of them written down. But uh, mm. it was a famous battle against the odds where he, the, the the English uh, crown defeated the, the French forces in at Poitiers, which is sort of central France, you know. And two important results came from this. So this is obviously the first phase of the Hundred Years' War. Um, he actually managed to take uh, John II of France hostage, you know. And which is not bad, taking the king of, you know, of your opponent fr- uh, hostage in battle is is obviously going to win you a lot of fame. And it did, you know, uh, but from this, he managed to actually take him hostage and in order to kind of uh, get to release him, he he. You know, he expected a heavy, heavy price and it included a ton of money. And as well as that, he made the French king, hostage king, uh, grant him Aquitaine. So grant this whole uh, massive swat of, uh, I suppose, what you'd call south southwest France, the area around Bordeaux and into the Midlands, Limoges, that area. He granted all that to the English crown because of this, you know. Uh, so, yeah, he was, a, he was a wily operator and um, he's portrayed well in the film, but not they don't in any way go into his sort of darker side, which did include, like, as I said later, when he did become this prince, the Aquitaine, uh, like he there was he he was famous for sort of levying a lot of taxes this made him very unpopular with the locals there was a a rebellion in the city of limoges in in the central france and depending on the sources who you believe he either uh, massacred 3000 or if you're being kinder you're looking at 300 people you know ah that's not um, too bad so, he's only massacring 300 people it's not too bad exactly so it kind of remains to be seen why he actually got this, uh, why his why his name he became known as the Black Prince, so to speak. You know, well, sounds um, cool. Anyway, exactly. Then yeah. he he died actually fairly young, so he was the heir apparent to the crown, but he actually died the year before his father died, Edward III. Mm. So when he died, essentially, um, that was in thirteen seventy six. The throne passed to his son, so the, 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 the so Edward III's grandson Richard, um, and we don't know why he died. People think like he suffered all his life from dysentery, uh, you know, but no one really knows. But you can still visit him today. Um, I believe he's in uh, Canterbury Cathedral. So if you're ever over in England, pop in and see it, see the Black Prince. You know, he hasn't moved much in the last few hundred years, but you know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> what I was thinking of throughout most of that was like what you were saying that he captured the the king on the battlefield sort of thing. I was like, 
Why would you do that when you could, as in Outlaw King, just have a duel with them and then let them walk away? Yeah. Like at the end of Outlaw King, guys, which we also have an episode on, <laughs> which is the the thing that absolutely didn't happen in, in Outlaw King, which makes absolutely no sense. Why would you let the king uh, that you're, uh, of the country you're away. fighting just, just walk, walk away? away. Yeah, it's fine. Um, that's fine. Which also didn't happen, but but yeah, that's uh, so. This is the better version of that. That's what you should do, kids, when you're you're yes. fighting uh, a big battle. Um, great. I thank you for uh, enlightening us on on the Black Prince here. He's a small character, but important to the sort of portrayal of the society we are in in the film. I think. Yeah, I, yeah. I would just say that is literally a snapshot. This guy actually had a very interesting life. Like so. The problem with all medieval history is that you never hear about the peasants and the normal people. It's always yeah, based exactly, yeah. on this character. And the because he was a <laughs> Exactly. And because he was a bit of a celebrity, there is a lot written about this guy. Whether whether he's uh, whether it's true or false remains to be seen, but definitely uh, worth looking into, yeah. Great. So, now let's talk about Chaucer. Uh Jeffrey Chaucer who steals the <laughs> uh steals the film to a, to a large extent. Um, Rightly so. Yeah, yeah. He, he becomes uh, Ulrich's herald in this. I So Trosser, obviously a real person, wrote the Canterbury Tales in large degree, like, you know, it's him and Shakespeare you sort of talk about when you're talking about, uh, like, people who really formalize the English language, or am I wrong here? Uh, is, the, is this just the impression I got from this film, or is this actually true? Well... Uh, you're not wrong. Um, it's it's interesting that he's he's in the movie. I did, I did think it was it was pretty funny uh, <laughs> that Paul Bettany was playing Chaucer, um, just because you know Paul Bettany has has uh, lots of good qualities as an actor, but the whole the the explosive uh, overacting when he when he's heralding uh, von Lichtenstein, it was just absolutely hysterical. Like you know, I'd I'd watch half an hour just of that you know um but Chaucer himself yeah look Chaucer I would probably you know I, I would consider him along along the lines of yeah Shakespeare William Blake Dickens you know George Eliot uh which is the pen name of Mary Evans um Ir- Irvin know. Welch yeah <laughs> Irvin Welch yeah <laughs> mm, maybe not uh John Milton you know Orwell, those kind of people. He he he's one of the pivotal um, authors in in uh, of English literature. But why he's in particular interesting is because he's born in in the in uh, in around thirteen uh, forty. We're not actually entirely sure, uh, but around thirteen forty anyway in London. Um, he's an MP. He's a member of Parliament, so he's in the government, and he's a sort of a bureaucrat and a, and a diplomat. Um, during the Plantagenet reign. Now, that's less important than his career as as a writer. And the reason why he's, or the chief reason why he's important as a writer is because he sort of uh, popularised and, I guess, um, lent legitimacy, I suppose is the word. Like, he sort of lent legitimacy to the use of English yeah. as, a, as a written form of expression. Now, that might sound a bit silly because obviously he is English, but what you must understand is at this point in, in English history, the nobles, the upper class in, uh, in, in England, uh, if not Wales and parts of Scotland and Ireland, um, they don't speak English. They, they are Norman French and they, and they speak and write French. And if it's not French, it's Latin. They don't, like English is sort of the language of the common man, of the of the peasant, and this would be thirteen hundred. So you'd be talking probably Middle English. Uh, now Chaucer is uh, one of the fathers of the language for that reason, because he popularizes and legitimizes the use of the native tongue 
uh, to express or for artistic expression. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, he wrote uh, he wrote a lot of things, but he wrote a he wrote a, a collection called the Canterbury Tales. And one of the stories in the Canterbury Tales is called the Knight's Tale. Right. Um, and the Canterbury Tales um, sort of are, are really important because they give us. Uh, romanticized and, and exaggerated, but they give us a flavor of certain social aspects and situations that existed in the 14th century. And one of them, of course, is the duties, the behaviors, and the acts of a knight, or at least what they should behave like. So I think the title "A Knight's Tale" is is sort of is sort of fitting, even if it doesn't follow exactly. The, the plot, or even really that closely at all, the plot of the actual Knight's Tale, it is sort of leaning on the romanticised version of what a knight is, as espoused by Chaucer and von Lichtenstein. So in that way, it's it's, it's kind of a clever a clever title for the movie. But, uh, I, I like, easily my favourite part of the movie is is, is, is Pop, is Bettany playing Chaucer. I just think it's, it's hilarious. And any use of... Uh, you know these historically significant characters. I, I, I'm always, I'm always sort of all for that. So I sort of forgive the ludicrous anachronism that's going on here. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how accurate this actually is, but I think it's probably true for many medieval characters uh, and and people because uh, I, I just heard that there's a period of time where we don't, we can't really account for Chaucer's whereabouts uh, historically, yeah. and that's kind of where the time period of this is, and it's a, a fact fantasy obviously for like for everyone involved but the idea being that he went off and hung out with these characters and then as is implied at the end of the film it's not that this is an adaptation of the knight's tale it's more that these events sort of inspired the canterbury tales uh because he says at the end of the film like you know i should write some of this stuff down and they're like what the bit about the knights and that and he's like ah the whole strata of human emotion you know <laughs> and it's uh fantastic fantastic <laughs> <laughs> yeah he, he was he was certainly in uh in france during the hundred years war um he in the in the 1340s 1350s maybe i'm not I'm not entirely sure um but during dur- certainly during the, the hundred years war um chaucer is uh was in um was in belgium or maybe northern france and like he was he was captured uh during a siege during like a french siege of an english held town like so he, he certainly was in um he certainly was in in france uh, around so he was a war reporter mark <laughs> i don't know if i got that far i think more as a bureaucrat really more as sort of on staff if that makes sense um but he certainly he certainly traveled around uh, the mainland of, of europe for sure um and so the idea that he might find himself um uh, involved with, uh, with with some jousters it's not completely outside the realm of possibility you know that he would have been around uh that period as, he, as a young man so yeah it's a good idea it's a good there's, idea. There's also like minor characters, um, like because in this, uh, Chaucer has a gambling problem and uh, like gets stripped of all his money and clothes and is humiliated by these side characters. And he tells them at the end that I will eviscerate you in fiction. I will lay to bear like every <laughs> pimple, every spot of you. And these are characters who appear in his writing. <laughs> Uh, to in not the best light so I just love that it's very silly but it's like just sort of a connection point of like his writing is inspired by this 
he's been humiliated by these two people so he went on to do the same to them in fiction um it's very reminiscent of shakespeare in love which is a film that critics have sort of compared did compare at the time to a knight's tale which came out a few years before this in 98 and uh we will have forgotten all about it at this stage maybe but shakespeare in love won eight uh, sorry, seven Oscars, including Best Picture. Um, and it's very much the same sort of content of having the writer be around these events that we can connect in our brains. It's kind—it's not an adaptation. It's like seeing the behind the scenes, but it's entirely fictional. Um, and I, I don't think A Knight's Tale was inspired by Shakespeare in Love, but I do think it helped to blast any potential studio blocks for this strange film out mm. of the way. The fact that just previously mm. something kind of similar came out. They're both obviously part of what was sort of a subgenre, or it's, I mean, still is, but it was more active kind of at the time where we have these anachronistic uh, historical films that, you know, the ones we talk about on this podcast are often that to some extent. Um, but like, there's more cartoonish ones like you know western films like shanghai noon that came out 2000 uh inglorious bastards which will be in this season of uh real history we're going to talk about that but that's also a very anachronistic take um as is you know marie antoinette from 2006 i also see lots of similarities uh with moulin rouge actually in this film because this is not a musical but a knight's tale kind of is almost a musical because the there's this music these musical moments that propel the film uh forward and the the fucking music is uh also diegetic how do you say it in english it's you know it's part of the film's world they're literally singing we will rock you in the first scene of this film yeah. which <laughs> helps to set the tone obviously and tell you don't take this too seriously because we're not taking it too seriously um i did enjoy the, the enjoy the soundtrack like the, during the training mont- montage where he's yeah. learning to you know be an i it's low rider by war <laughs> <laughs> and um when they when they reach paris for the world championship it's um tin lizzie's to buys are back in town like so there is like it's a good soundtrack it, it and it even ends i think it's um acdc you shook me all night long so yeah. you know i could definitely get behind i didn't get behind this movie i've i've tried to wipe it from my memory uh but <laughs> the soundtrack is it's uh is it saving grace i'll have to say you know it's a strange movie. Yeah, the, the the director said just on the film, uh, sorry, the the music, like someone said to him, this is from a, an interview that came out around the time of the film being released, like someone said to him, like, you can't have this kind of music in this movie. And he asked like, okay, what, mu- what music do you think would be right for this? And they were like, well, you know, an orchestral score. Um, and, obvi- and, and the director, much like we always complain about stuff, was like, well, the instruments in an orchestra did not exist in 1370." There were no cellos, no violins, no brass section. So why is it okay to be 300 years early, but not 600 years early? And that kind of uh, illustrates the appeal for me about these boldly anachronistic films. It's that they don't try to sneak stuff past you. They tell you up front what uh what like that this is not what happened unlike for example like apocalypto which is just as off in like the time period it's portraying 
but we're not going to, like, no one's going to know that watching it. You're going to walk away thinking, yes, that's exactly what it was like. And no one watching A Night's Tale is going to walk away thinking, yes, that's exactly what it was like. <laughs> they might walk away excited about this time period and seeing, like, ah, jousting isn't, like, a boring thing from a history book. It's, like, the first blood sport or whatever, like, first extreme sport, uh, yeah. like you were saying, Michael. So that's what I kind of appreciate about these, besides yeah. the fact that it also just whipped up my, like, I just love a sports film anyway, so... <laughs> So it had yeah, me no, no, go. like for the, the the film itself, like don't get me wrong, it's entertaining, you know, and I know, and I'm, it doesn't pretend to be historically accurate, so that's why I'm not really giving it a hard time. What annoyed me about the film is the dialogue. Mm. I just found the writing to be really, really poor. Um, like, like it's just ultimate cheese. Please tell me you have examples. But, Let's hear some. Because yeah, like, you're very right. Like it's the type of stuff where I, I was watching this and my partner was in the room and, and she just walked through and she kind of like, look, she was like, is this supposed to be a historical movie? And I was like, never mind, don't worry about it. But like some of the uh, the lines from it when Ulrich is talking to Jocelyn and this is the major theme of the film, you know, their love, whether there will be a romance or not. And he's like, I've seen sunsets and sunrises, but nothing like your beautiful face. And... I miss you like the sun misses the flower in the depths of winter. Or love has given me wings, so I must fly. And you're just kind of like, oh, this is horrible stuff. This is, I think I was saying it to you, like, this is the type of poetry uh, that you write to your first girlfriend when you're 10 years old because you don't know what the hell you're doing. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> or, or this type of thing. So I, f- I found it just very, very clunky writing um so that kind of ruined it for me <laughs> what i appreciate about those lines in particular is i believe those are said they're like the gang sitting together writing this love letter all of them with all these cheesy lines so it's not like because ulrich himself or will is like i don't i he doesn't like you were saying he doesn't know what to say that will work so they're all sitting and writing this joint love letter coming up with these cheesy lines which i which is why i don't consider it to be like the film being cheesy it's rather them having all these cheesy things put together and kind of poking fun at it at the same time but at the same time there's also a lot of cheesy dialogue that's just a hundred percent we're not joking around here this is what this character is saying and you better get on board (laughs) the pope may be french but jesus is english that's a great that's a great great line come on come on i love that line yeah, and look, I, I just think of all the movies we've watched, and I'm including Seven Samurai in this, which is obviously a movie made in the 50s and in black and white, this is the most, like, of its time. Like, mm. this movie could not come out now. Yeah, you, it just, sure. it just, There's just no chance that, that anyone made... Like, there's equivalent actors and actresses out there to, uh, to like, where Heath Ledger was in his career um, before the release of this movie and, and so on. But, like, no studio would give, would give any money it is it's such a strange even just from an aesthetic point of view it's a very odd movie like you say it's sort of like oh like disneyland idea of what a night looks like and then it's the modern music and the way it's shot and everything it's very very strange you just you just wouldn't get a movie like that today i think absolutely and i think uh yeah it's very uh it, it very much shows what time it's from because there were like shakespeare in love whatever but just this trend of like slightly like historical films that aren't really historical films that were kind of happening mm-hmm. which kind of i mean we see threads of similar stuff in later on like the 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 great gatsby the one that came out in 2013 yeah. like the music and mm-hmm. stuff um and like even jojo rabbit came out the other year it's also not very mm-hmm. respectful obviously like great movie at the same time um but yeah this 
This one stands above all of them because it has the line, it's called a lance, hello, which is possibly one of my favorite lines from any film ever. Um, And it's all of these things, like the costumes we talked about, they're all made to appeal to a modern audience. Uh, Like, I think, again, behind the scenes, they talked about how the characters have to look like the Rolling Stones on tour in, like, the 70s. They need to look sexy and accessible. It Like, they don't give a shit about connecting it with, like, anything realistic there, and they're doing it in, in a fashion that you're either going to be on board with or you're not <laughs> very much so i think we, it's good yeah. that we have differing opinions michael we, we we don't have to fight about it i think it's just great to have those different sides of it where this film will either work for you really well or it won't work at all i i, I can't imagine watching this and go and being like meh <laughs> no meh is not the reaction that michael had <laughs> based on based on the tone of the text messages he was sending us while watching it <laughs> yeah. Um and we've also exchanged the uh our real history group chat icon for uh, three of the main characters here trying to figure out which one is which out of the three of us. And if you want to let us yeah. know which character is which uh from a knight's tale, you can email us at showswhatyouknowshow at gmail.com or you can leave a review at uh Apple Podcasts. Those are very much appreciated. Uh, do we want to mention a source or anything for people to look into? Yeah, like the source I would recommend for um nights what a night is supposed to be like all of that kind of stuff um is a book from a historian who we have um we have mentioned at least once before probably more than probably more than that, a guy called thomas asperidge who's a, an english um historian of the medieval period and about five or six years ago he wrote a book called the greatest night the Remarkable Life of William Marshall, The Power Behind Five English Thrones. Uh, I would recommend that because it's obviously it's a biography of um, William Marshall, who's a pretty uh, pretty fascinating um, knight from the the height of the uh, the height of the period. Um, so it, get, it gets involved with like Eleanor of Aquitaine and Henry the Young King and Richard the First and all that kind of stuff. It's really interesting. So I would recommend that. Very good. Any closing thoughts, Michael, from you? No, no, just that the castle itself look, uh, has recently reminded me of Bowser's castle from Nintendo. That's about it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty accurate description uh, or, or depiction of that then. So, so they got something right. Well, that's about it then. You can go to showswhatyouknow.com to uh, see all of our... We've managed to reference uh, Kingdom of Heaven and Outlaw King and all sorts. You can find all of that at showswhatyouknow.com. Uh, and as I said, please leave a review. That's it. Thank you. And that's the end of the reel. <laughs>